0: This podcast is brought to you by WatchCity Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. I'm joined this week by Abby Covert, who'll be talking about Stuck, Diagrams Help. Welcome, Abby.
1: Hi. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining the podcast. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Sure. My name is Abby Covert. I'm an information architect and an author. I live in Melbourne, Florida. Um, I got my start working in information architecture through consulting, and then I did some time in agency. I went out into uh, independent consulting for a while, went back into an enterprise, and now I'm back out as an independent author. So I've been... uh, doing this kind of work for two decades now. And information architecture is sort of the, the focus of my work as well as the focus of my writing. Uh, most recently, I wrote a book called Stuck Diagrams Help, which we're going to be talking about today. And I also wrote a book called How to Make Sense of Any Mess, which is a information architecture for everybody book.
0: Cool. That sounds like a very you know, varied career path there. <laughs> yeah. um, c- can you dig into that a little bit for us? How did you discover information architecture? And, and how did you wind up where you are today?
1: Yeah. Um, So I went to undergraduate uh, for graphic design and about two years into that program, Uh, we started to be introduced to a concept called information architecture. Um, And at that point, this was a print design concept. Like we were designing things to be printed out. And we were talking about the hierarchy on a page. And we were talking about meaning of shapes and images and words and how we could, you know, kind of get across the meaning of an intention with just those elements. But about two years in, I was also introduced to what they were calling multimedia studies. Uh, and at that point, it was starting to get into digital interfaces. So I was recruited for that program and became the designer on a team working on a video game. And coming out of that, that program, I was really interested in tech. But to be honest, I was still looking for a print design job. Uh, mm-hmm. And my very first job out of school, I got this job designing an icon set for banking software in Bermuda. Uh, And I found it on Craigslist, and it was as sketchy as that sounds. Um, (laughs) So this was a a really weird assignment. They sent me like a list of verbs, like print, save, create, those kinds of things. And I just made icons to the standard, and they all looked great on a page together. And I never even saw the interface, Dan. It was really Mm -hmm. embarrassing. (laughs) Um, So... They wanted these icons, and I had to drive the working files up to an office of this consultancy that was doing this work, and I had to drive it because we couldn't email it at that point. Uh, It had to be transported on a jazz drive, and so it required a rental car. Um, So I got up there, and I gave them my icons, and they put them in the interface, right? Because they were going to show them off, Uh, and it was horrifying, just like, wow, this is not what you should do. Like the rest of the interface was a total disaster visually. But also they were planning on putting these icons there with like no labels, which they hadn't told me to work the labels into the icons. And so I just was like, yeah, this is a bad idea. And they were like, well, why? And I'm like, because it's software and you have like 18 things here. You can't just put them in a bar across the top and expect people are going to know what they are. Like I'm a good icon designer, but like nobody is that good. Like that's just... That's bad. And they were like, do you know what information architecture is? And I was like, yeah, duh. Yeah, I'm a graphic designer. Of course I know what that is. And they were like, well, do you know how to do that? Like for software? And I'm like, what do you mean? And the guy that I was having a meeting with gave me like a copy of the polar bear book from his office. Mm -hmm. And he just was like, hey, you should like look into this. If this is a thing you're interested in, like let us know because we need this. And so, yeah, I like went to Barnes and Noble and bought my own copy and I read it and I was like, holy crap, this is like yeah. exactly the parts of graphic design that I really like and exactly the parts of digital design that I really like merged, right? Yep. Um, and so, yeah, it just became this sort of interest of mine. And then I ended up being hired by that same company as a junior information architect. So from there, I just, you know, went job to job and figured out what that meant along the way.
0: Sounds like you did have that serendipitous moment, as a lot of us do in this field, where there was someone who introduced you to it. And it sounds like you got really lucky there in terms of finding that person Then this company who had the foresight to to need information architecture.
1: Yeah, it was so interesting because it was, um, so that was 2004. And so, like, you know, it was a couple years into the community of information architects starting to meet and form as Mm -hmm. groups. And so there was a lot of discourse online. There were a couple conferences. There were mailing lists. So there was a lot for somebody like me to reference. Like, I was able to go to boxes and arrows and learn, like, how to write a controlled vocabulary and how to think about taxonomies. Like, I didn't know any of that stuff from my design degree. Um, So I had to pick up sort of the information science side through... Um, yeah, through the community and through the literature, uh, which has been a really interesting path for me as well.
0: Do you remember how you first approached that, that initial problem so now you had this icon of with a, a bar of icons? Yeah, what's the, what's the next step there? What, you know how do you approach that?
1: It's interesting because myself as a designer at that point wanted to have an immediate solution. So I was like, you know, give me a whiteboard and a marker. I'm going to show you right now. Let's put together a menu. And I, like, made, like, a a two-tiered menu system with, like, an adequate number of options at the top and at the secondary levels. And, like, that's kind of what anybody would do, I think, if they were trying to – to solve that problem. What I didn't do is say to them like, well, I would really have to know more about this in order to recommend something. Um, that would take me you know, a couple of years to really get the sense of that that was part of my job too, was to actually like, yeah. get validation from the users of the thing, um, which seems really strange now because I, I feel like I've helped a lot of organizations go on the journey to become user-centered. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important for us to remember that we all have to go on that journey ourselves. Like becoming user-centered right. in your design practice is something that all of us have to have to learn. And the earlier you learn it, the better for your kind of trajectory, but.
0: 100%. Well oh, and it's the same trajectory that the industry took, right? It, it, it went from best practices to incorporating best practices with what users actually want and need. You know, exactly. actually talking... users
1: yeah exactly and then we got data you know and we were like wow Mm -hmm. we can actually look at what happens and know what happened as a result of what we did (laughs) rocket ships
0: so thank you thank you for that thank you for sharing your your journey there tell us about your book stuck diagrams help tell us about that please
1: Yeah. So as a teacher of information architecture, one of the easiest to grasp mediums of practicing IA is in diagrams. Like when people see diagrams, they inherently feel like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I get that thing. But after years of teaching diagrams, I really started to realize that people were not quite sure how to make diagrams. Like the the best way to be taught to make them seem to be give them a template of a type of diagram and have them fill in the template for their current context. And the problem with that is that not all of the diagram types apply to all contexts. And often it becomes like a limitation based on your tool set. Like you only know about three types of diagrams. So all problems look like those three types of diagrams. Mm -hmm. So I really started to think for my own students about like, how do I really like introduce diagramming as a practice? And also like Is there other places where that's done? Because diagrams are everywhere. I mean, they're in the medical field for diagnosing things, and they're in the design field for planning things, and they're in the technical field also for planning and discussing things. Um, You see them in teaching. You see them in law. You see them in technical illustration. I mean, there's all sorts of places where they are helpful objects to get a point across. But how do you actually learn outside of one of those contexts to create a diagram. And that was ultimately um, what created the idea for writing a book about it. Um, Mm -hmm. My first book touched on diagrams and provided these 10 examples all based around the simple concept of pizza. Um, And it broke down pizza in 10 different ways showing like different types of diagrams. And people loved the pizza diagrams, but they would also say things like, but how do I make my own <laughs> one mm-hmm. of these? And that yeah. was that was giving them templates. Um, so I started to do research in late 2021 um, about you know what exactly makes up a diagram. Like, what's the sort of like salient definition that that is across all of those contexts? And what I came to is that a diagram is any visual representation that helps someone. Mm. And like. By that definition, so many things fall under that umbrella, but it really allowed me to go wide with the application of this idea. And so I started collecting stories and examples and Um, academic sources. I brought on a research librarian to help me kind of dig into that next level. Um, Jenny Benevento, shout out. And yeah, we just started to really like uncover all of these amazing layers on there are some universal things that we can agree on about what makes diagrams effective. You know, understanding who your audience is, understanding the intention that you have for the actual diagram, understanding the scope that makes sense for that diagram picking the right scale for the medium that you're going to put that diagram in and then like doing the actual diagram part like deciding what shapes make sense deciding how to use lines deciding what the labels are going to end up being Um, and then ultimately like what are you packaging that in like how are you making that a thing that is then delivered to your audience Um, and that journey i think is a really interesting one to to take people through to kind of like slow down time right because a lot of diagramming i think happens in the mind and then when it gets to the paper, it's sort of, like, already done. Um, so leading people through, like, that whole thought process is a big part of the book.
0: I, I imagine there's a, a continuum of what constitutes a diagram. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what you said at the beginning about icons. Icons almost seem like they are a diagram. And then the other end, there's a full-on infographic. Is, sure. is there a continuum? And how does you know, how does that definition of a diagram work?
1: Yeah, I think that if it is a representation that helps someone, then it is diagrammatic. If you're providing an icon that is so clear that it is projecting the meaning of what the thing is, I would say that it is playing that part. It's also Mm -hmm. playing the part potentially of an interface, right? And those things can be one and the same. Um, And yeah, I think that that brings diagrams to a level um, where you know they're not just things that look like boxes and arrows. And I think that that's a really important point. Like maps of the world are diagrams. There's some of our first diagrams are maps of the world. Cave paintings that they've recently discovered uh, that early humans were tracking the ovulation (laughs) cycles of animals and all these crazy things about birth patterns, like they were using those drawings diagrammatically to communicate information to help one another. Um, So I think that diagrams are one of those things similar to information architecture that existed without a label for a really long time. Um, And now that we have a label for it, it's sort of on us to decide how to teach other people about it. I've been really lucky to see a lot of people have the light bulb about what diagrams can do. And often the part that I like the most is like weeks later, when they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I made a diagram and it really did help. Um, because we've all had that stuck feeling, right? Like back mm-hmm. to the, the title of the book, like stuck is actually an acronym um, and it's an acronym for what I think the superpowers of, of diagrams are. So um, they provide stability, right? They can be very volatile out there. Um, and diagrams really can give us like a place that we can kind of land. It can be about transparency, right? When we're looking at um, information visualizations often are about transparency, about like providing a transparency to a data set that otherwise would be hidden to us um, because it's in a medium that we don't understand. There's things for which understanding is really the center of the diagram, right? We're explaining something to somebody when, when we're educating them or teaching them. Um, C is for clarity. So there's some Uh, Concepts that without pictures are just inherently more difficult to teach. Imagine teaching somebody about a human body makeup without a picture. Mm -hmm. Like imagine teaching somebody to play chess without a picture. Um, It's just not not easy, right? Um, And then the K is for kindness. uh, Because I think that ultimately diagrams provide a really kind respite from the complexity and ambiguity and volatility and uncertainty that drives the need for diagrams, right? It's, yep. it's like a, a place that we can put our thoughts so that they won't get lost. It's a common page for us all to get on. Um, and yeah, it's an amazing collaborative tool, but it's also an amazing tool for introspection and use for yourself. One of the core things about the definition of diagrams is that it helps someone And I try to remind the reader many times that someone can be you. Like, just you is enough for the audience of a diagram. Um, And that frees us from kind of like what the medium has to be or how formed it has to be or how beautiful it has to be or how well designed. Um, It's really just about the helpfulness. And that that determines whether or not something's a diagram. Uh,
0: You bring up an interesting point I'd never thought about in, in the kindness part in terms of how diagrams can bring communities together. Uh, Mm -hmm. in in particular, one that comes to mind is the double diamond, which we've been talking about for years in UX. And it's that visualization, it's that diagram that has done such a wonderful job of explaining Mm -hmm. UX processes to others. And I feel like it has brought our community together and expanded the community to, you know, others outside of UX.
1: Yeah, I would say that most professional practices have frameworks where diagrams are the star of the show. Mm, (laughs) And it's just, it's a very common, common wisdom to make things visual. And, Um, I think that a lot of people shy away from diagrams because maybe they're not like design minded or they're not visual people um, or they can't draw. Uh, Those are all reasons that I've heard. But I think the simple fact is that they're still helpful, Um, Mm -hmm. even in their most crude form, even in their most like messy form. They can still just be really helpful objects of discourse. And I think a lot of professional fields have benefited from that.
0: Mm -hmm. So how how do we? How do we make amazing diagrams to help us get unstuck?
1: I mean, a big part of it is understanding that there is a lot of thinking to do before a diagram is effectively made. So one of the points that I think is really important to bring up early is that like if you just start making something with boxes and arrows, um, you're going to struggle. You're going to feel even more stuck because you haven't actually identified what it is you're trying to do. Um, what also happens is that diagrams kind of sneak up on people. They're like thinking about a thing, working through a thing, um, really agonizing on a thing. And then the next thing you know, there's like a note card out on their desk and they're scribbling some shapes and they're like, oh my gosh, I finally figured this thing out. You right. know, so I feel like um, acknowledging that both of those circumstances are still on the same process of like... You are picking why you are diagramming and you have an intention behind it you know who you're diagramming and what you're diagramming and kind of the scale at which you're doing that and all of that is going to massively improve your ability to make those shapes and lines mean anything at all and a lot of people get stuck they get stuck in their head with the first part of like, oh my gosh, and I have to think about the audience and I have to think about the scope and I have to think. And it's like, they don't allow themselves to be messy in that beginning part. Um, so I think that that's a, a big part of it is like figuring out how to acknowledge that non visual part of the diagrams. Um, on the yeah. cover of the book is a, a Venn of two circles and one says visually represented and the other one says help, help someone. The visual part is only 50% of the diagram's magic. And I think that that is a crucial part of the process is acknowledging that other side. Who does it help and how does it help them? Um, and being really dogged, not just about that in the like coming up with the idea for the diagram and the execution of it, but also in the testing of it. I think that diagrams are interfaces just like anything else that deserve attention from a research standpoint. Like if you can't have a member of your audience describe your diagram back to you and have them get it like 80% right, it's yep. not good enough yet. It, it's just not. So, so yeah, it's like acknowledging all of the other stuff behind the diagram as yep. well as improving the basic craft of the visual part but honestly once you get through the the people part and the scope part the shapes and lines is kind of the easy part to be honest yeah Yeah. and there's some there's some patterns that i outline in the book and some recipes that you know you can rely on when you get to that part but a lot of it is actually preparing the reader to be in that uncertainty um of figuring out who their audience is and what their scope is and how they're going to scale that for their intention
0: Embracing uncertainty is just huge in, in UX and IA in general, right? You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's that image that comes to mind of the fuzzy front end of design that's all messy and, and squiggly that eventually smooths out over time. And it totally. sounds like diagrams are take that to heart in its own little subsystem.
1: Yeah, I think diagrams can be useful at pretty much any of the points in the design process, right? Because you could be using diagrams at the beginning to do like discovery work. You could be using diagrams along the way to work out, you know, back and front end details. And then you can be using diagrams at the very end, actually explaining concepts to your end user potentially. So Mm -hmm. there's, and there's different audiences for all of those diagrams. And the expectation that you would make one diagram to serve all of those audiences is also like... Right. Yeah, that's not going to work. Just like any other interface, right? Um, so yeah, I think that there's, there's a lot of wisdom that I think user-centered uh, professionals can already apply to diagramming. Uh, it's sort of like some people come to it with the visual side and you have to remind them about the people side. And then some people come with the people side and you got to remind them about the visual side. Yeah. Um, and so I think like ideally the book uh, does both.
0: Yeah, for folks like me who are researchers who need help on that visual side, it sounds like that would be of great use, so thanks for that. What else were you hoping to convey here today about diagrams and and your book?
1: I think that there's sort of a, a myth out there that all of the diagram types have already been created in that we should be spending our valuable professional time trying to find the example to emulate. Right. Like Mm. trying to find not only an example, but one that's actually been shared openly, um, which is an even smaller pool. And so one of the things that I really have used every opportunity that I get a microphone to um, tell people is just that we're very early in all of these industries that are working themselves out and diagrams are the core product of a lot of that work, and they're changing over time. And the one that is sort of like the diagram du jour, um, that morphs over time too. And so I think my my like biggest piece of diagrammatic advice in terms of learning it is to jump in and learn the practice of it and start to make your own types of diagrams, start to yep. mash things up for your unique context but be really dogged about that user side like don't don't be inventing things in your bat cave that you think are a good idea to mash up different diagram types and it's really just like showing off how you how much you understand a really complex thing um right. you know figure out actual practical uses for diagrams and then Find unique forms, you know, just like interfaces. I think there's times where we should be using patterns and design systems um, for consistency and for efficiency and all these things. But there's also times where we do come up on a unique design need, and I think people have to be kind of reminded of that in the diagram uh, circumstance because they just, you know, we want we want our hero diagrams to always work, um, right. but they just don't. I, I've made I estimated over a thousand diagrams in my career, and. I am telling you, most of them do not adhere to, like, being categorized as one specific type that you could Mm -hmm. just be like, yep, that's definitely just that. Um, There's always, like, a little thing, right? Like, I'll be making um, a sitemap, for example, and it's like, that's mostly a hierarchy, but, like, "Mm, actually, this one part needs a bit of a flow, so I'm going to put it in there. Like, that's more useful for the audience that I have than, like, breaking those two things up because one is supposed to be a flow diagram and one is supposed to be a hierarchy diagram. And so, yeah, I think that that's um, the permission that people need. I am here. I am on this podcast and I am giving it to you. Nice.
0: (laughs) Nice. Well, I mean, it's, it's a matter of what works for the audience, right? You know, same exactly. example goes for like service design, where we have journey mm-hmm. maps and service blueprints and ecosystems, exactly. and they don't have to be separate. They can be one document if it works for the the audience.
1: Exactly, exactly. And if you need to change the labels of those frameworks to work with your context or your audience, that's fine too. Like, um, one of the things that I think as an information architect was the hardest for me to write about in the book was labels, like the Mm. just the role of, of words in general in diagrams. And the reason was because I had to acknowledge how fundamental the word part is but also how bad we are at it at the beginning of our process. Like right. we are so fumbly about what we call things when we first start exploring them diagrammatically that if we don't acknowledge that our labels are sort of placeholders, we can get stuck in them, right? And then they can just become the label because everybody looked at the diagram so long they convinced themselves that the label makes sense. So I actually uh, lay out kind of three phases that I think labels go through because at the very beginning, like like I said, you're kind of just like clunky getting through it. But, you know, in the middle, you want to start making sense to people. You want to kind of like start to iron things out. And then at the very end, that's when everybody comes out of the woodwork and is like, I got to change this. You got to change that. That label doesn't make sense. Um, So, yeah, labels are just what a fascinating subject. They also they do happen to be the thing that other people give a crap about in a diagram. I don't know why. They never care about shapes. They don't care about lines. But goodness me, a label that will get the attention every single time. That's where all of the feedback in a diagram is.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, Abby, you gave us a lot of great information here today about diagrams and um, how they can help people's work here. So thank you for all of that. Uh, In the final portion here, we like getting a career tip for folks in UX and IA. Um, What career tip can you convey?
1: Okay, I thought really hard about this because there was a lot of potential options. But I think I want to go with network with your peers. Mm -hmm. And I know that network is like a very common, like go network, whatever. But I think that sometimes when we go to network, we try to like connect with people that have achieved things that we want to eventually achieve. And we're sort of doing the like pick my brain request. And I think that those can be really effective for like a fact finding mission about career paths or, you know, making some high level connections in an industry. But I think there's this other thing about peership, Um, that I'm just really interested in. I I feel like over the years, most of my uh, guidance in my career has come from these peerships that I've developed with other people that are going through the same thing as me at the same time. Um, And I've just found so much long-term value in those relationships. But I wonder, since I'm not currently building that network anymore, like, are people being told that part? like that it is valuable to meet with people that are doing the same thing as you um, and not like already got the job or already wrote that book or already speaks at the conference. Like you, there's a lot of value, not only in meeting people that are doing the same thing as you and talking about it, but also like growing that network and knowing those people as they grow in their careers. Um, Because guess what? Those are the people that are going to go off and write the books and go to the conferences and start the companies and maybe hire you for your dream job. So I feel like that's something that maybe also goes in the like permission needed category because like it's Mm -hmm. weird. Making adult friends is hard. Making them outside of the workforce is even harder. But yeah, if you're going to a conference this season or you're like in a Slack group or something like that, like put yourself out there. Like have a a coffee date with somebody who seems like you in terms of what they're doing with their career or with their life and pick each other's brains and figure out, you know, how you could help each other. Because I think that that's really valuable stuff.
0: No, it totally is. And honestly, I've never heard that piece of advice before where it's OK. Networking, you're always talking to the folks who are going to hire you. But what about right. you're learning from all the people around you and, and the pitfalls yeah. that they ran into and sharing your pitfalls? That's that's yeah. very cool. Thanks for that.
1: Thank you for the venue to share that.
0: Yeah, no problem. So um, our, my guest today has been Abby Covert, who's been chatting about Stuck Diagrams Help. Thanks for joining me today, Abby.
1: Thank you so much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. The 97 UX Things Podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.